Insights to Live By, the podcast, discovering new pearls of wisdom to enrich our lives. If every business is in the business of selling, does that make everyone a salesperson? Hello and Welcome to Insights to Live By. I am your host, Matt Zinman. So grateful to have you here for a conversation I have been looking forward to, a topic I've been wanting to cover for some time. And the gentleman here has delivered uh, graciously thousands of articles. He is also the author of now his fourth book, with just, which just came out last month. And he really, truly has impacted hundreds of thousands of salespeople uh, everywhere. He's an international speaker, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and sales leader specializing in the complex business-to-business sale. Anthony Anarino, welcome. Great to see you. Good. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I, I've uh, I've had the opportunity in prepping for the show to certainly get to to know uh, a lot more about you. It's it's uh, gotten me uh, all the more uh, stoked to have the conversation with you. And you know, naturally, we'll talk about your your books. And I, I I've read the uh, the latest re- amazing reviews about it online. But that's not the only thing that you do. You also have uh, a, a couple of companies. Uh, the uh, Anna Reno, um, Fullen Group, and Solutions Staffing. So let's just work backwards. Uh, tell me about those. Uh, how do you do it all? I don't do it all. Like when you when you have a, a number of companies, you have a lot of people that have to help you. So it's it's hard to do. Uh, Solution Staffing is my mom and her business partner's company. And uh, they started that when I was 13, 1980, in a recession. They didn't know they were in a recession. Uh, two single moms. My mom had four kids. Her business partner had two kids. And they went to the bank to get a loan when they lost their jobs because the franchise owner lost the franchise to the Snelling and Snelling um, office that they had. Mm. And uh, the banker said, uh, if one of your husbands could co-sign for you, we'll give you a loan. And between the two of them, they didn't have a husband. So uh, it was a bootstrap story. They bought two desks for $25 each. I think we had those desks for like 35 years or something. Like they just pushed two desks together. That's what they started to do. And uh, now it's a $50 million company. Wow. Uh, We have a smaller version of that that's called MES. And then um, my mom's business partner's son is same age as me. And uh, we started Anarino Fullen Group, which is a a different type of staffing firm than, than what we ran. So it's a much higher pay rates, much higher skill sets in a, a different business model. So that one is uh, in Phoenix right now and will soon be in Dallas. Well, I mean, look, as, as, uh, as well as you can uh, uh, take your mom to dinner, I wonder, you probably don't mind if she ever takes you out. I mean, you know, she's doing okay. <laughs> you she, she <laughs> you never let your mom pay, I'm sure. I'm just saying. She, not as no. There's there's no no reason that that would ever happen. <laughs> right on the heels of your mother's day. Herself, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, wonderful. So Anthony, uh, I, I noticed. Well, what I think you're best known for uh, is the the sales blog. 
And if, if I understand correctly, you have written uh, something just every day for over a decade. Is that right? Minus about 10 days or 13 days when I went to Tibet. And I thought they're not going to have Wi-Fi in Tibet. And I, I mean, I'm going out to Mount Everest and I didn't carry a laptop with me. And then I got to Tibet and like, you're going to Mount Everest. So you're going like 15,000 feet up and then you're going down and there's lakes. It's beautiful. And then you're at 17,000 feet and you're going down. China wireless has better connectivity than <laughs> if I was in Westerville, Ohio. Like it, first off, there's nobody out there except nomads. So there's not a lot of traffic on those. But I could I I could have been able to write every day while I was there with no trouble at all. But I didn't think I was going to be able to connect to anything. And it turns out that you know the Chinese are kind of interesting. They're like put a wall there, you know, like all the way across the country. And so when they when they put up the bandwidth, the bandwidth is up, and it goes all the way to Mount Everest. You can make a call. I called people from Mount Everest wow. to tell them I'm on Mount Everest. It was perfect. Well, it's funny to say, I mean, look, Mount Everest is uh, quite the one of a kind life experience. You're a hardworking guy. You'd think 10 days would be okay to you know, just kind of take a little bit of a break and pull back. But it almost sounds like you're a little guilty that your streak was not uh, satisfied in that in that 10 day span. You're so yeah, devoted I mean, to the but, blog. Uh, but I, I mean, I was in a car for days, like days driving out to Mount Everest. I had plenty of time to type if I, if I would have known that I was going to be able to do something with it. And right. I, I probably should have done that, but I well, it. you know, hopefully you'll forgive yourself and, you know, people are Eventually. really, <laughs> are really bummed. Uh, but, you know, look, you've got the sales blog, you've got solutions staffing. Uh, and across the board, one of the things I noticed is that Everything that you represent really just says what it is in, in as plain a language as possible. That's well, that's right. That's kind of the golden rule. Well, the reason I used the sales blog was because at the time it was 2009. Actually, it was before that. I think I bought it in 2007. And uh, one of the things that you learn about the internet is that if the domain name is the search term, it's really helpful getting traffic. So I started with the sales blog, knowing that if people were searching for sales blog, I would probably show up. And uh, it turned out that that was true. So I, I picked Smart. that just because I was thinking about how do you get people to find this uh, as the internet was taking off. On December 28th, 2009, I decided to write every day. I sat down with my wife and I told her, I'm going to be keynoting within a year. Uh, I got the first gig after starting writing every day, 10 months in, uh, I got my first uh, paid sales kickoff meeting. And so I wish I would have been able to do it in the year that I promised her, but I missed it by seven days. Uh, so I, I was there you go again, early January, but wow. I, I didn't quite make the exact one year mark. So it's worked for me ever since then. I mean, I know you're prolific with your books and I'm sure there's, uh, you know, in all the, in the workshops that you do and the keynotes that you do, but how do you come up with a topic to differentiate from another for well over a decade every day? How do you choose? I never, I haven't covered, <laughs> you got to cycle somewhere. No, Yeah, for sure. So okay. sometimes you write something and it's good and it's helpful to people. 
And then as you talk to people, you realize some people don't really get this and Uh I need to show it to them in another way. And then I write it in another way. And other people say, I really, I really get that, that, that helped me. And uh, what's, what's interesting about this is I, I stay on topic for the most part. Uh, Google doesn't think I do. They, they don't think I do very well at that. Cause I have uh, I'm number one for how to start a fight. Uh, I, I have that. I'm the first uh, entry there. Interesting distinction. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's not what you think it is, but it's what Google thinks it is. So that's it. I, I'm also, uh, I've got a very, very high ranking on 10 qualities I admire in others. And Google, some of the best posts I've written have nothing to do with sales or business at all. And for some reason, they, they rank very, very high. And so when you, when you want to be known for sales and Google thinks that you're number one for money motivation and how to start a fight, it can be confusing. I like it. Well, I'm sure it piques people's curiosity. You get traffic uh, unexpectedly, and I'm sure they enjoy the content. Uh, anyway, how many, how many people after all this time are following your blog on a regular basis? Well, the newsletter is about 100,000. Wow. So it's in that area, but it's, you know, 60,000 a month or something like that, that, that visit the site. It's fantastic. And, and a great example of what, where consistency gets you. So uh, that's just amazing and, and, and dedication to say the least. Now you are uh, just published in April, your fourth book. Uh, the first one I'm real curious about because, uh, you know, back in 2016, it's titled the only sales guide you'll ever need. And so, of course, my curiosity was, um, how do you how do you write a book after that if that's the only one you ever need? You sit I'm down, busting your chops a little bit, but right, you, you sit down and you recognize you have a three book contract, and you owe the publisher two more books. So you you immediately start typing as soon as you turn the first book in. Uh, the publishers, it's kind of like a courtship at the beginning, and it's like we really want to hear what you think about the title of the book and. I already had a title, 17 Elements. And they're like, yeah, we don't love that one. We have some things that we want you to look at. And I looked at all of them and I thought, no, none of these work. And then at some point they come to you and they say, here's the cover and here's the title. And you realize, okay. And then the second book. That's a publisher. Yeah. So the second book, I said, the book is called The Art of Commitment Gaining. And uh, that's what we do is we gain commitments. And they said, yeah, you know, we'll send you some things that we're thinking about. And we're still in the, in the beginning of the relationship because I wrote that book uh, and it was published eight months after the first book. And they came to me eventually and said, uh, the name of the book is The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments That Drive Sales. And I said, okay, but people don't really like closing. And the CEO of the publisher said, people love closing books. And I'm like, no, you're thinking about like the eighties. Like it's not that time anymore. Yeah, yeah. And con- commitment gaining would have been better. I mean, you are the expert. Yeah. And I also um, happen to be younger than they are. And I understand like, I didn't want people to think it was Glengarry Glenn Ross. Right? right. Right. So, so I was trying to avoid that. And it took a while for that book to catch on simply because of the title. And uh, it, it seemed like something that might be old school, and it's not. It's a facilitated buyer's journey, and uh, it had nothing to do with that. Got the it. third book. Now, now you wrote these, uh, just to acknowledge, you wrote these one year after the other, uh, 2016, 2017. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to 
save you on this one. 2018 called Eat Their Lunch, winning customers away from your competitors. I got to give you the plug. You can't do it for yourself all the time. (laughs) You were saying the third book. One. That one went like this. This one went like this. Uh, Here's the cover and here's the text that's going up on you. The the romance was completely over by that time. Right. And and fortunately, I loved the title. I thought the title was great. The uh, head of editors there, Nikki Papadopoulos, was pregnant. And she went to lunch with her team and they were talking about the book. And she immediately said, the name of the book is Eat Their Lunch. And uh, so that was the pregnant woman who was hungry and she named the book. And fortunately, I loved it. So that one worked out really well. It sounds like, you know, your followers, sales professionals would would like that. And they actually want to win customers away from competitors. And, and again, in that case, it absolutely says what it is. Now, your new book just coming out here in April. Um, I, I just want to acknowledge, number one, you you went 2016, 2017, 2018, and uh, four years went by. Like, why have you been slacking? That's my question. <laughs> I was very unfair to the first three books. I did not. Uh, I did not promote them well enough. I didn't spend enough time with each one of them. Uh, kind of like children. Like I, I didn't spend enough time with each of them. And I decided to take some time off and let people catch up with the content that I'd already created knowing that I was going to write a lot of books in my life. Like I have time and I'm going to write a lot of books. Uh, Peter Drucker wrote 54. Uh, Last book was published at 93 years old, died at 95 years old. So I feel like I've got some time to write um, at least two books a year. I mean, look, if you can figure out all these different ways to write topics for a blog for over a decade, I imagine you have some content to work with. And, uh, and a number of different topics that can find their way into uh, a book. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, do you have a, a target for how many? Two a year until I die. Wow. Okay. I'll hold you to it. I've just, already done two this year. It's a little so. morbid, but yeah, I'm with you. Hopefully this is a, a long, long time, Anthony. Now your, your, your newest book um, I have to tell you, I, uh, I, I've seen the reviews. They're, they're so, uh, they're five stars and then some. It's called Elite Sales Strategies. Pretty, pretty plain and simple. A guide to being one up, creating value, and becoming truly consultative. So, yeah, I mean, look, I read the reviews and uh, you're right. You know, you, that, that gap of time, um, it's evident just in reflection of the reviews, you had a three book deal, you make bang, bang, bang. And now, uh, you know, you really seems like you put a lot into it because the people who are doing these reviews read your other books and they're, they're coming back saying, you know, this is your best. It's a must read. Um, you know, the whole, I, I think they really focused on this one up concept. That's what I kept seeing the, the, the mm-hmm. experts who, who like it. Um, let's talk about that. What's that about? That is a way to think about the relationship that you have with another person who you're trying to help. Now, to get there is not quite as straightforward as what I just said. So the, the, the long version of this, which I'll make as short as I can, 
there was a, a spiritual guy named Alan Watts who came out of England and he started studying Buddhism when he was about 12 years old and started following people all around the world. And he became a seeker and eventually became a, an expert a spiritual guide. And I've always admired his work. And I decided to listen to his audio because he used to record albums and, and that, that was the way that he delivered some of his content. And as I was listening to him tell one story about uh, an, a person who was working on strategic uh, therapy, uh, and his name was Jay Haley, and he was at Stanford with Gregory Bateson, who was a polymath who was studying everything. He's responsible for a lot of things that happened with computers, but with also with therapy and uh, all kinds of things around anthropology and culture, like just a, a very wide human being and, and very, very smart and Jay Haley had the occasion of reading a three-volume set of a book that was about the relationship between somebody who needs psychoanalysis and somebody who delivers um, psychoanalysis. And the name of the book was The Nature of Being One-Up in Psychoanalyst and, and the, the relationship between the psychoanalyst and the patient. The book is something different than you would think it is. But basically what, what the general theory was, was that the person who needs psychoanalysis knows that they need help and they want the person to be one up. So that, that's what they want. They want the psychoanalyst to be one up. They can get some help. They are one down because they need help. But at some point in the relationship, the relationship changes and the person who's receiving psychoanalysis decides that they don't like being one down anymore. Now, the psychoanalyst will tell you everything I'm doing to make them feel one down is so that they can understand how to be one up when they leave the office. So that's the truth of the relationship. But at some point, they'll say something like, Dr. Matt, you're a horrible human being. You're a terrible therapist. I don't know why I give you my money, and I don't know why I'm wasting my time here. You've never helped me. And the psychoanalyst, having followed always followed Freud's recommendation to never respond to anything to be behind them. So they can't even see that you're not paying attention to them at all. And if they do turn and they look at you, you're just staring at paper or right. at the aquarium in front of you or whatever. And then the person eventually realizes that nothing's happening. They're not getting the response that they want. And they'll say something, Dr. Matt, you know, I am so sorry. You've been so helpful for me. I really get a lot out of this and, and I apologize to you. And they would put themselves in the back, back into the one down position. So as I was reading Jay Haley's um, magazine article in a magazine called et cetera, in the early or late, I would say the late fifties, early sixties, I recognized the relationship between the salesperson and their client. And what I recognized is that the person who is supposed to be helping the other person is responsible for being one up, which means I know more than you know, but it doesn't mean it like you think. So it's not, I happen to know more than you know about everything. That's not right. It's I know more than you do about this decision that you're making and the better results that you need. So it's not a contest of which of us knows more. Um, it's a contest about who should be leading this conversation and who's supposed to be being consultative and creating value for the other person and who is supposed to be the recipient of those things 
And so the person who's one up is responsible for under my ethical uh, obligation as a salesperson to make sure that you're not one down when you make a decision. My job is to make sure that you're in the one up position and that I transfer my experience and my knowledge to you so that you have a clearer lens to look at the decision that you're making and so that you understand how to make the best decision and get the best results. So that's what I would call our ethical obligation as people who help other people. Now, I'm, I'm not saying sales. I'm saying when people help other people, you have an obligation to help make sure that they know everything that they need to know to make the best what decision. What I'm hearing you say result. is, you know, of course, anyone uh, in the uh, sales field is going to know their whatever it is they're selling inside and out, but it has very little to do with that. They need to be an expert uh, on the prospects business and somehow, you know, be able to demonstrate that they are one up uh, to provide the uh, consultative value um, uh, and, and bring per, someone to that level of that expertise. Uh, that's what they're really selling first ahead of the product. Well, if you're close, but I would say you're not going to be one up when it comes to understanding your client's industry or understanding sure. how to get things done in their business right. or, or having a clear view. So the one thing about being one up is that you have to be one down. And uh, I'll give you the, the shortest story of this that I can. I, I was working with a division of limited when I was 25 years old. I had hair down to my waist. I wore a suit every day. They I'd like to see a fabulous. picture of that. I'm just going to say, uh, they always ask me like, go ahead. <laughs> they, they would, they would, when I would come in with a tie, they would say, did you go to a funeral today? Like who died? Like, why are you dressed that way? Uh, and they would be much more casual than I was but I'm still wearing a suit because I have super long hair and I'm still fronting a, a hard rock band. And at one point I get invited to all of their meetings for production and they keep talking about throughput. And I understand the general idea of throughput, how much goes through this process and, and, and how do you measure that? They were using it as math and I couldn't understand the math. And so I, I walked into a guy named Dallas Mulder, who was the, the head of the group and I, I said that Dallas, I understand what throughput means. I mean, I get it, but I don't understand like the math equation that you guys are talking about. I don't understand how you're using this. And he said, would you like to see the spreadsheet? And I said, yeah, I'd love to see the spreadsheet. And he said, here's your labor costs. And here's the amount that we put through and what it's worth to the enterprise. And so this is our measure. And what we're trying to do is get the best throughput that we possibly can. And he said, so your part is how much gets done with your workers and how much does that cost us? Now I'm educated. Uh, he gave me a copy of this, this spreadsheet. So that was nice. And then about 15 minutes later, I walk into another, it's actually not 15 sure. minutes later, but let's say it's a week later. And I walk into another distribution center and I say, uh, how are you guys measuring throughput and what do your numbers look like? And they're like, wow. This guy understands throughput. Right now, I understood. You knew enough to know much. it's important to. Like, I, didn't, I, I didn't really know. <laughs> I I knew enough to to be able to be conversational uh, about what was important to them. That's right. And then I I started asking other people to educate me, and I would say, help me understand what's most important for me to do to create the most value for you. And I asked people that. I just kept asking them a question, and they would tell us, "This is what's most important to us, and here's why." And then I started to understand how businesses worked. 
and, and not my business. Cause I still didn't understand how my business worked. I mean, I understood the model a little bit, but I was too young and not interested for so long. But then once I started to understand other people's businesses, I became more valuable to people. And that's something that I really wanted to be was more valuable to other people. And it turns out that being one down is the only way that you can get to one up. And that's right. to recognize your one downness. Knowing what like you, you don't have a know. lot of one downness and yeah, well, you're ignorant and ignorant doesn't mean dumb or stupid or anything like that. It means you don't know what you don't know. And other people have greater insights than you do in certain areas. And if you can go and buy a book for $25 and, and spend six hours reading it, you're getting the total sum experience and knowledge of an individual that spent 20 years learning that. I mean, it's, right. a, it's the greatest, it's the greatest deal on earth. You're literally paying them like a penny for, for every hour that they did work doing that work. It's a, it's the best thing, but if you can just go to people and ask them, help me understand this, you're going to do really, really well. Naturally, when you're writing the various sales books and you're putting your best foot forward, I mean, there's certain aspects of best practices around sales. And I, I didn't hear what you say about, uh, you know, having a finger on the pulse, things change uh, in terms of what makes a sale most effective. And so now I know you put a lot into elite sales strategies. In addition to being one up, is there anything else in particular that you would describe differentiates this book from the others that you've written from a practical standpoint? Probably the easiest way to explain this. The first book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, is a competency model. And, and what I, I learned when I started helping people with sales is that people would say, this person's not good at prospecting. And then I'd watch them prospect and they were good. They just didn't have any discipline. And, and so I noticed like they, they're just undisciplined. That, that's why they don't do enough work is because they're very, very uh, distracted, uh, which is easy to do today. And, and I would notice that some people just have a bad attitude and their results suffer because, and this is, I'm in your world right now, like their mindset's right. bad. They have a bad mindset and their attitude's not good. And they, they spread it. Uh, negativity is the only cancer that spreads by contact. And, and ultimately it, it metastasizes inside a team and the culture ends up going bad because you allow something like that to happen as a leader. So I started to figure that out. And I wrote this competency model for B2B sales, which for the first time, there's a competency model with business acumen, change management, and leadership as skills for a salesperson, because that's what I recognized that I had that allowed me to differentiate from other salespeople in a commoditized industry. The second book, The Lost Art of Closing. Let me ask you a question. And you may have- Just to differentiate, I know you have also developed a trademarked methodology called level and value creation. Yeah. Is that what you were just referring to or is that related to something else? That's probably the oldest okay. piece of content that I ever have. It's called level four value creation. And it's about starting the conversation with okay. a strategic outcome. Right. Just connecting dots, I want to understand. So uh, uh, please yeah. go on. The, the yeah. second book, the, the Lost Art of Closing. What I realized is that the linear sales process that a lot of salespeople were taught starts with target, 
qualify discovery solution design presentation proposal pricing negotiation win lost that's it so i realized that, that people didn't care about that like they had their own questions they had their own things that they needed in the conversation and rather than trying to do this linear process that starts on the left side of a slide and ends on the right side of the slide it turns out that there's other things that they need that you can help them with if you get out of that box and say what do they need right now? They might need to talk about the money early on. I don't know. Like they might need to have more people come in and start building right. consensus earlier than you think they do. And I realize that there's there's a problem with it being linear when the other person doesn't want to follow that linear path. So I wrote the law start at closing to teach people how to have some deal control and make sure that the client it's, it's effectively going through their buyer's journey, having all the conversations that they need. And I thought that was the most important thing for me to give after uh, the, aligning priorities the model. with communication. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So commitments okay. and conversations. That's eat, what we eat do. Their lunch. The third book was, yeah, that was my oldest content. So the, the idea of the four levels of value came to me in 2011. And uh, I was trying to teach people to be strategic and not to have low value conversations in a more transactional approach. And level one is your product. Level two is the experience. Level three is solution selling, the tangible result you can give them. But level four is what executives care about. Like what's the strategic outcome? How is my result going to be different because of this when it pertains to my profitability or market share or whatever it is that they want. So your, your question as a salesperson is, how do you know what they want? Right. Well, you're going to have to find that out. But if you start with a strategic conversation about these are the kinds of things that we're enabling, then you give them a hint as to that. And it's easy to get into that very, very conversation. What I don't like is uh, the solution sale that starts with, I have to find a problem and then I have to insert my solution as the way the client should solve that. And I'll, I'll try to give you a, a hint from my, my past. In staffing, I have a database. My competitor has the same database. We both have generally the same processes. We both are doing something that's very similar. When something's similar like that, it becomes commoditized. And what I realized was that a lot of times sales organizations in staffing lost clients because they couldn't take care of the client, but they couldn't take care of the client, not because they weren't good companies, not because they weren't working hard, not because they didn't know their business, but because they didn't tell the client that the client was wrong. They didn't, they did not right. have the courage to say, the problem is, is you're not paying I enough mean, that's to get the, the definition talent that of you being need. Consultative. And you're, yeah. Right. I have to tell you how to run your business. That's it. So when I started teaching people with an executive summary that labor is not abundant and it's not cheap, then I started to win deals without ever having a slide deck other than a few pictures of charts that explain that labor is not abundant and it's not cheap. And when they would look at that and then all of their existing outdated or false assumptions or misconceptions disappeared and now they're confronted with reality. And then they start to realize, 
wait, if this is true, then what we're doing is not going to work. Great. Now we got the Y change out on the table. So now that the Y change is on the table, now we have a chance to create an opportunity and to help the client change. So I immediately got rid of my legacy slide deck, right. the one that has a picture of yeah. your building and all that kind of yeah. stuff on it, got rid of that. And I only started doing this. And still to this day, uh, that company, we, we don't have a presentation. We don't have a proposal. Uh, we have a contract and insight. That's all we have. And uh, we it's went close at about 100%. Rate. So, <laughs> so, uh, so you differentiated those three books. And now uh, as, you, as you come out of that, how do, you, how do you describe elite sales strategies? Yeah, so that one is sort of the pinnacle of the first four books that I've wrote. So I've written four books, I've published them, and I, I have them in this particular order. I couldn't have written elite sales strategies, and uh, I could not have had um, the content sure. for this until I had done that other work. And I, I don't think it would have been fair to give it to anybody before then anyway. So I'm not saying that you have to read all four books, but the books do go in a certain order. So if you're new in sales, taking right. them in, in this exact order is great. If you've been selling for a long time, um, you're going to look at elite sales strategies and say, this is actually useful content for somebody who's already a good salesperson and who's already con consultative and, and, and concerned with creating value. So it's, it's well, you've already seen a number of my friends have said. Yeah. It's oh, yeah. I, I mean, the, <laughs> I, I, I unfortunately didn't have a chance yet to to read the book coming into the conversation, trying to learn as much as I could about you. I was like, well, why don't I just go to Amazon, see what it is? Your your book's only been out a few weeks at this point. You've got coming up on twenty interviews, and then all five stars. And uh, I learned from what people wrote about what they learned. Again, it, it came back to that being one up was a commonality that people seem to take to. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing I'm, I'm curious about uh, that, that piqued my interest from what you were describing before is that that, that traditional problem solution approach where someone, uh, I, I think, conventionally thinks that that's how they should go about a sale is, oh, you know, let me probe around and figure out, right, if, uh, you know, what the pain is and see if I've got something that's going to solve it as opposed to being consultative. Now, there, there's and one up. In, in being that, um, but I'm seeing cart and horse on on both sides. On one hand, from a product side, uh, you're the the company, the prospect is not going to. You're not selling that. You're you're selling your your knowledge and your insight ahead of of that to to bring them up to uh, you know your level of expertise uh, for their benefit. So they don't know anything about the product, and then coming in, you may be one up, but how do you connect that dot for them to realize that you're one up for even just to have the conversation and, and have the credibility if they, I mean, look, Anthony, people know you, uh, you know, you've earned, uh, you know, through uh, any number of ways, uh, your reputation, but if you're coming in and you're just trying to, you know, make a sale and, and there's no established relationship uh, and they don't know you from Adam, how do you how do you bridge that gap? Well, here's what the legacy approach to sales would tell you to do. Tell them about how great your company is. Tell them about how wonderful your founder and CEO is because they're just 
an amazing human being that uh, has been on this mission for all these years. And then tell them to look at your trophy case. So that, that slide you have with all the logos that you you've won over the years and then uh, tell them about your problem, your, your product or your solution and, and let them know that it's really good and it will solve their problems. And then ask them what's keeping them up at night. Like that, that's what you would be taught. Now, why do we do that? Because marketing thinks that the most important question that you have to answer is why us? But that's like going on a first date and saying, uh, well, you can see from looking at me that I'm incredibly handsome. I have a, a very high level of sexual charisma. I'm uh, incredibly uh, rich. I have a very large house. Not going to lie. And, you're you're uh, checking some boxes nice here. And I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I'm well educated and uh, you should uh, have babies with me. Like that's a terrible first date. That's a terrible first date. Right. And so when you, when all you do is talk about yourself or your company and what's in your interest, the other per- person is sitting through this. Right. If it was really a date though, the, the woman would get up and say like, I'm going to run to the bathroom. I'll be right back. And you'll go, like, <laughs> right. why are you taking your purse with you? And they're like, well, well, cause I'm going to get an Uber and get out of here as yeah. fast as I can. It's a terrible conversation. That person hopes that you're interested in them and that you have some way to help them when you're sitting across from them as a salesperson. So I would challenge you that if you think that the right thing to do is to ask the client what a problem is, instead of explaining to them at the beginning why they have the problems that they have, then you're starting as an amateur, like you're one down. Like, I don't even know what the problem is. You have to tell me what the problem is. Now, you might have to help me with the implications for you specifically, but how do you sell the same thing every day for years and years and years and walk in and say, what kind of problems are you having? It's your first day on the job, Jimmy. Like you just got here. You, I'm the first person you talk to. I got to teach you what the problems are in my industry. And right. don't you already know this? Like you're, you're, you're immediately projecting your one downness. Like I can't do this until you tell me got the it. problem. And then I'm going to tell you what the solution is. Now we've done this. I wrote a, a post recently about everyone is differentiating in the exact same way as their competitor. You're all doing the same thing. You're all having the same conversation in the same order because the marketing people take the beginning and then the product people will say, Matt, listen, the product will sell itself. All you have to do is explain the features and benefits. And then the senior leader is looking at you like, why are you talking about these things that I don't care about? Why are you not talking about the things that are actually important to me and the results that I need? And so we've moved past what I would say the the direction of the evolution of B2B sales and maybe B2C is that it's moving towards greater value creation. Like you have to do a lot more work to create value for the other person because they can never experience your product. Exactly. And, and all, all excellent points. And Anthony, I'm really glad that we're, I mean, you might say, oh, we're in the weeds here, but it really is a lot about nuance. And one of the things that you mentioned that I tuned into uh, is is the perception or, or the expectation rather of a prospect that you know what my problems are. And the other aspect of well, what makes a sale happen? And uh, I, I'm certainly not one up on you here, but I know that a pain point is really an impetus for 
the sale. And we, we have this pain, we have to solve it. It's hurting. Um, you know, in my area, that might be, uh, um, you know, retention issue. Uh, it might be uh, people hurting from the, from the pandemic and all the things that they need. The other, in that example, they may not know that they have that problem. So it sounds like it's right. It's your role to come in and kind why, of help why, them help illustrate or have a light bulb go on that uh, about a pain point that they're not really tuned into. Is that right? Or have not prioritized. So when you walk into a company and you say, I'm going to help your team with their mindset, I'm going to help um, improve your culture and, and I'm going to do these things. Well, if you believe that they're in pain, well, how much pain are they in? Right. They, they haven't changed yet. They, they haven't changed. So they're not in that much pain. So what you're looking at is 1967, the year that you were born. David Sandler started his training company in, in that period of time. And that's the pain chain that people have. So that's, what they, that's where that came from. Anything changed in, say, the last 55-ish years? Have you noticed any changes in the environment uh, that that's worth um, noting? I'm going to defer back to you on the, on that question. Okay, everything. good. <laughs> everything has changed. Yeah, right? of course. Everything There's been a lot of change, changed. and you know, like even everything has look changed. as you've so, come through even the references to your books and being the finger, having the finger on the pulse of things. You're you're tuned into that for the very purpose of how things are now, um, and it's constantly yeah. to the question I asked earlier. You know, best practices. Well. You know, some best practices go right out the window for one reason or another, and new ones have to be in, uh, you know, uh, work through through maybe just experience. So, um, yeah. uh, please continue your thought. Yeah, and and so when you when you come in and you believe that they have so much pain that they should be changing, you have to ask yourself why haven't they changed already? And it's because there was no impetus. There was no uh, event that caused them to say, we need to do something about this now. So you need a salesperson who's one up to come in and say, do you know how many of your people are taking uh, treatments right now? Whether that's a treatment where they're meeting with somebody or whether they're taking a, a pill because of the stress that they're under because of the depression that they feel, because they live in a great time of uh, an, an unmatched uncertainty where everything seems like it's upside down. I mean, and that is the world that we live in. And you start showing people the data around this thing and what it costs them. And like, they don't, they haven't- Right, and that I'm sure not. I mean, people generally know like there's this underlying pandemic, you know. but yeah. uh, as companies care about numbers- What am I yeah. supposed to do about it? Right. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, there's there are things that you can do about it. And there are things that are going to improve your business and, and give you better retention, give people a better experience. They're going to deliver better for your customers. Like there's no downside to what you sell. There's zero downside. The downside is uh, you did it as a, as a pilot and you didn't do it wide enough. That's it. Like now I've got these seven people who are, completely different than everybody else because they have this new vision. And now you have the rest of the organization that's miles and miles behind them because of that. And so that, that is the, the truth of this. If you believe that the pain and the problem is enough to cause them to change, then why didn't they change? Because somebody didn't come in and teach them the actual cost of this, what they need to do about it, how they should think about it, what decisions they need to make, 
and and how they're going to go ahead and execute something that's going right. to give them the better results that they the, need. The business case uh, to a certain it. degree. So I don't know, like what we've been we've been on the phone for or right. on a Zoom meeting yeah. now for some period of time together, and so far no one has called you to say, uh, Matt, listen, I need you to come out here today so you can. Well, sell my phone's me your on services. airplane. Mode. Why is that? Why are they? <laughs> <laughs> but mine, mine apparently isn't yeah, yeah. because it, it already went off once. But it, you, you have to think like, the, why are they not solving this if it's so painful for to them? It's not that painful for them, and they can live with the status quo because it's sure. the devil they already know. You're introducing a new devil most of the time, and they're like, well, we don't know that devil. Like the, that could be a different situation for us that we're not prepared for. But that, that so I'm, I'm just telling you what I, I have, I can see that other people may not see this way. And it's hard. And I, in, in the book, I offer people uh, a test. And the test is uh, you're going to be able to speak to your dream client for 25 minutes. But you're not allowed to name your company. You're not allowed to talk about what your company does. You're not allowed to develop rapport. You're not allowed to ask them what their problem is. And you're not allowed to refer to any of the customers that you help. Uh, based on what I what learned you from say? you in this conversation, I'm going to be talking to them about what I know their problem already is uh, with, with data and uh, trends and things that I know they'll identify with uh, through the experience I already have knowing that. Yeah. So when you show the chart that says 72% of people are, are already under right. great pressure and stress and, and the impact that it has... You don't have to say any of those other things, oddly enough, and you can create tremendous value because when you say my company was started right, right, in right. 1865, yeah. people are like, oh, and they're great. not innovative. So we're going to have a history lesson in their ways. You know, I have to say, I'm really glad now that we're in the weeds, except for the fact I probably owe you $10,000 at the end of this conversation. <laughs> um, send, <laughs> Boys, send I'm sorry. You didn't get a PO from me. I'm just letting you know that. Um, I really appreciate it. You know, Anthony, uh, it really is important for us to get uh, this deep and uh, in the conversation for those listening to have the, the true value. So thank you so much for that. We are, we are going to get to our insights to live by um, shortly, but I don't want to be abrupt. Uh, hopefully it doesn't seem that way. Is there any other areas of the main topic here that you feel we didn't cover well enough that you think uh, just to deliver any value uh, as to wrap it up that you think we ought to? Oh, good. Okay. No, well, I if I didn't ask such a long-winded question, we'd be <laughs> already. All right. Well, before we get into our insights to live by, uh, you may not know, we have a, a little special segment here on the show where we have, as you see, insights about Anthony and Areno. <laughs> um, all right, Anthony. So here we go. Spin the wheel. You ready? I'm ready. All right. Well, this is, uh, and, and I should say that uh, every guest in a calendar year um, never gets the same question. So you're the only person who's going to answer the question you see here, what limiting belief have you overcome? Um, so there's so many. I mean, as a, as a kid that grew up in an apartment complex and spent every day trying to drop out of high school, uh, I believe that I, my life didn't have a great deal of value. And, and I, I acted on that belief for a long time. 
uh, after I had a brain surgery in 1992, where I had uh, what's called an arterial venous malformation, which means a group of arteries and veins that grew into a knot. Um, and, and it pushed on my brain and as it gave me a grand mal seizure. Uh, I had uh, two surgeries. The first one, they glued it shut with a type of epoxy. And then the next day, that was a nine hour surgery. Then I had an 11 hour surgery and Dr. John too, at the University of Cincinnati removed the AVM and uh, a good portion of the back right temporal lobe uh, of my, my brain because it was bruised and it would never, it would never heal. So what happens when something like that happens to you is that you start to compensate. And my compensation was I lost part of my brain. I need to do something with the rest of it. Like whatever's left, I have to do something. So I went to college and then law school and then Harvard business school. So nine years I went to, through college to try to compensate Wake for up the call. loss that I had, even though the loss yeah. was actually wow. the best thing that ever happened. And, and uh, not so, to yeah. skim over it, but Harvard is, is good street cred. I'm just going to say, um, hard, hard. I, I, I will have maybe hopefully a, a post conversation. I've never, I don't know if I know exactly what it's like to go to Harvard. If you have the time anyway, now well, if you have a check and it clears, you can go like it turns out they're a uh, for sure. profit. Absolutely. Organization. Um, okay. So let's go to, uh, spend this one more time. Let's see where we end up and learn something else about you. The question that has come up is to name something that you love most at home. Now, I, I will couch this a bit and just say, of course, your wife and your kids and family. Um, we have to go a little bit beyond that. Something you love most at home. When I bought this house, uh, it was maybe, I, I think I bought it in December 2018 and I moved in in June, 2019 or July, 2019. I'm not sure. My wife knows much better than I do what the dates were, but it's right in that area. When I walked into this house, it's a beautiful house. It was built by a, a guy who was an electrical contractor and did like the West ends. And so he built a beautiful house and then he sold his company and he had to move to Florida and the house went up. And the next day I was the first person in to see this house. The oddest thing for me was walking through this house and not seeing a single book. There wasn't a single book in the house. And I'm thinking like, what kind of monsters live in a cave like this where there's not any books? Like, how could you not have books? And uh, well, I'm you love books. And I apologize if you don't have books in your house, but I have uh, about a thousand books sitting oh. next to me. Oh, wow. On, Look on at that wall right here. And then I have uh, the the other thousand books downstairs uh, on IKEA um, library that my wife the IKEA library had uh, commissioned for me. So yeah, so it's it's just being surrounded by books, and this is my one downness. Like I am ignorant of most everything, and I don't like to be ignorant of most everything. And how do you correct that? You just grab a book. And you spend a, a couple hours with uh, Machiavelli and you have an insight about political power and how it's wielded. So that's, that's what's what I love most. Now, yes. Wife, dogs, Elgato, the cat. He's the only person that interrupts me at four o'clock in the morning. He now 
since I feed him, he now comes to the side yeah. of the bed to tell me it's four o'clock, even though I know it's four o'clock and insists on being fed. Before yeah, got to drink yeah they're good alarm clocks. We have, so. we have three, uh, certainly a big part of our life too. Um, well, that does bring us to our featured segment since the show is named your insights to live by. We're going to cover three. Uh, you can do these in any order that you want. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be about sales. They can, this could be about the advice that you find yourself giving anyone uh, often. Uh, Anthony and Arena, what is your first insight to live by? So you've already decided that death is morbid. And uh, I, I want to correct you if I can. I've done the research on this. There are uh, 108 billion people who have already died. Okay. So that that's the number of there's 7.8 billion of us left, which means you have about a 3% chance of living forever. If, uh, if, if, if we figure something zero, out in the next couple of that's, months, that's ambitious and optimistic. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it's zero. Yeah. yeah, it's probably zero. You get 4,108 weeks. The, the reason you have 4,108 weeks is because the average lifespan in the United States is 78.8. And the reason the number continues to go down uh, the pandemic had a big impact there. So that took the number down, but mostly it's fentanyl and suicide. So two things right. that you would care about in your work. Like these are, these are big ones, right? And uh, you only have 4,108 weeks and all of them are a gift. And so my best advice is to figure out, now this is, you're going to think this is morbid because I scare you a little bit on this. I actually keep track of how many weeks I have left. I have a number and, uh, and part of it is like, well, if you have thousands of books you haven't read and you can only read like one a week, you're never going to get through all these books. So you might say like, why do you keep buying them then? Just because in case there's something in there that I need, I can have it. So I feel that way, but you have to decide what you want to do with your life. And it doesn't matter if you're 21 and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life. Or if you're 66 and you have, you know, maybe uh, 22 years left, or maybe you have a few more, whatever it is, you have to start doing it now because you're not promised any amount of time, but on average, it's 4,108 weeks. I'm, I'm in the, you and I both are. I was about the, to tell uh, you, I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> I'm like, that's a really, that, sorry. honestly, that's the, that was my uh, comment I'm holding on to is like, that's a really bold move uh, to uh, to have that countdown. And I, I could go off on a little bit of a tangent there, but, but to the folk, go ahead. We're, 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 tw we're 1273 based on your birthday. Thanks. You have 1273. One more than weeks. you. <laughs> um, wow. Well, look, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have a lot week. of people are, you know, it's never too late to turn around no matter how far you go. Uh, one of the things we speak to is the power of regret and how anything that someone has always wanted to do and then they you know, get to the end and they never did it. If you could just rewind to, I guess, that counter uh, that you're that you're speaking to and say, well, what would I regret not doing? And when you weigh one versus the the, the regret versus the not doing, um, if the regret's heavier, uh, then it, it, it motivates. It makes that decision a lot, uh, a lot more urgent to, uh, to accomplish. So, uh, so that's certainly, that's certainly been helpful to me. 
I liberated myself when I was 12 and I ran away from home when I was 14. A lot of people run away from home. Uh, few of them drive an El Camino from Columbus, Ohio to right. Naples. That Florida. was the thing to do then. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. It was you actually for me. didn't come back. A lot of people it, run it, away. It, it and, definitely you know, was for just me. A stunt, but wow. The police found me and I drove back home. You drove, you got to drive even though you. Yeah. So no I, I, it's a tangent. Oh, okay. For, I didn't, they didn't tell They, they didn't check. They didn't, want, they didn't want the headache. Wow. That's a heck of a story. Um, yeah. I, I mean, look, it, it's, it's a good point to make. It's when we can continue on, but we do need to get to our second insight to live by. Um, let's go there. Anthony, what is it for you? What is most important is not a what, it's who. And, and the most important thing to do with your 4,108 weeks is to develop the relationships with the people that you love and the people that love you. Because in the end, like nobody on their deathbed is going to say, I can't die yet. My inbox is still full of emails. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you don't care about anything that's in that inbox. Nothing that, that matters. You're not going to say, I wish I would have spent more time working. Like you're, you're not going to say that even though you have a mission. And even though like me, I love what I do. I mean, I love it. I enjoy every minute of it, but what's most important are the other, other people in your life that you care about and that care about you. And at the end, that's the only thing that's going to matter is, is the people that you touched and the people that touched you. And that, that is the most important thing. If you're not familiar with um, Marty Seligman's work, who uh, huh. he's in Philadelphia. Uh, he created positive psychology. Right. There was no such thing before that. And one of the studies that his team did is when people were depressed, you need to read this because of what yeah, you do. I do you know positive psychology. Book, uh, I, I didn't know. I didn't associate the name. Yeah. Okay. So Seligman's uh, biography is worth reading. One of the studies that they did is they took somebody who was depressed and on on antidepressants and they made them write a note to the person that had the biggest impact on their life. And they had to write the note, but that wasn't what changed their, their state. They had to go sit down with that person and read it out loud to them. Now in every single case, both of the people are in tears at the end of the reading of the letter that they wrote to that person. And the person who was depressed is not depressed anymore. And they don't take any antidepressants after that. And, and we don't know how long that lasts because it's still going on. And that seems to solve this, this gratitude for what you've been given while and, you're here. And the connections to your point. And I would say, yeah, yeah, like it's the relationships. And when you give to somebody and they give something to you. So that's the thing. Like we're going back to the one up and one down. Like you have a gift to give somebody else that's going to change their life. And they have a gift that they can give to somebody else to change that person's life. That's what, that's what we're doing here. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, look, they go hand in hand. You're talking about uh, just acknowledging as maybe uncomfortable people might find it uh, that our time is finite. And uh, that's a, that's a, a great guiding light to realize what's most important in life. And um, thank you for that. So, uh, Anthony, we're going to continue on to your third insight to live by. What's that? 
way way okay. less heavy Good. than the I other ones i'm sorry my... but this one i'm just gonna say like <laughs> this is just practical tactical get up really early in the morning like get up very early in the morning and the reason i say that is because if you give yourself the gift of time in the morning you can have a very different life like all the things that you say i wish i had time to do you will have time to do early in the morning and you probably won't feel it later on so i'm going to say the the thing that happened to me when I decided to start writing every day is I knew I talked to a whole bunch of writers and I said, what time do you write? And they're like three 30 in the morning. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? Three 30 in the morning. Right. That's not the morning. Right. That's, that's the night. That's like the middle of the night. What are you talking about? And, and they're, they're like, well, uh, no one bothers you. It's super quiet. Your brain after just waking up is much clearer and I decided, well, I'm going to do it. At, I, I went started at five. Yeah, I got to get up at five. Like today, you, yeah. you get up at five because you're you're uh, you're <laughs> you're a little bit lazy, and you know you 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 like to stay I, I in that sleep warm in a little bed. bit. I was awake for, uh, for a while, but you're right; it's quiet. Um, yeah, please continue. <laughs> yeah, and no one no one wants your time except for <laughs> El Gato, the cat, who wants mine for just long enough for me to feed him, and that's it. But the thing that happened to me is that all of the other disciplines that I wanted to develop came much easier. Once you can train yourself to get up and have your feet hit the cold floor as you get out of the warm bed and you start to, you brush your teeth, you, you put clothes on, you go downstairs and you exercise. Or if you're me, you write first, you, you do that. Cause I, I do writing first because I want to, I want to have written. So at some right. point in the day, I want to, I've already have written, to. so I do that first the and then power. I still have time. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. If you get that, then the other disciplines that you want are much easier. And, and so I think you should get up as early as you can. For me, it's 4am and uh, it won't be t- tomorrow <laughs> though because I'm staying up to watch boxing tonight. But other than that, uh, I'm a nine o'clock um, I'm in bed. And so I read for one hour, go to sleep. And then I wake up and it's, I'm, uh, I and you know, there's a regiment there. And I, I have to say, you know, we, again, back to that, that first insight, uh, I, I did learn this lesson a little bit later in life. I'm glad that I, I did. I, I do very much appreciate the, uh, the, the quietness of the morning. Um, there's, you know, how Elrod's miracle morning, and I don't do it all the same every day, but it really has made a huge difference. And uh, all these insights going together, uh, the, even though obviously time mathematically is very finite, uh, the the experience, the perception, the productivity of getting up earlier, the 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 experience of I feel like I have more time, or you are managing your time yeah. based more on energy and being more productive with your energy. You know different tricks that you can do to even though it is finite make the most of it. And uh, to your point, uh, getting up early uh, is a huge one. We've never had that insight to live by of all, of all the shows we've done. And it really is and goes to the heart of, of a high quality of life. I'm really glad you brought it up. Thank you. If you look at high performers, you'll find yeah. most of them get yeah, up early. Yeah, I've seen that actually. Uh, Brennan Burchard talks about that. Um, among many, I'm sure, uh, because they're among them that do it. <laughs> so, um, with that, thank you. Some wonderful insights. They all go together. I don't know that I've really had anyone be so linear in associating. Uh, well done, Anthony. Thank you. Um, now, uh, a little time here for you. Uh, just make sure that 
uh, people know where to find you. Your new book, Elite Sales Strategies. Uh, you also have the sales blog and the B2B, that's with the number two, salescoach.com. That's where people can find you. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else you want to share before we uh, wrap up here? There's a, always good to go to the salesblog.com and sign up for the Sunday newsletter. I'll do it. If you care about these kind of ideas. And if, uh, if you want to connect with me, LinkedIn. Well, really that's how it happened place. for us. So uh, <laughs> it came together. A great example, I must say. Well, you've brought so much value to the conversation. Um, I, I really hope people really tune into the, uh, the, the nuances that we've covered, the, the insights so valuable. Uh, just so appreciate you, Anthony. Thank you so much for being our guest and uh, wish you the best. Hopefully stay in touch. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Insights to Live By. Please feel welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram and make the most of our free resources to improve your life for good at mattzinman.com. Wishing you and yours an enriching day and we'll see you next time.